Before we get um, too far into our text tonight, I wanted to express my appreciation. Uh, your response to last Sunday evening's message has been overwhelming. And when we looked at uh, what will you do with, uh, what about Jehoshaphat? And I've appreciated that. And um, in just the last week, there are three churches that I know of that are using that message to help them define why they are meeting indoors and why they are going to obey Christ and obey the Lord. And so we're thankful for that. Thank you for your response. It's been um, tremendous, very encouraging to me. A church member asked the pastor once, Pastor, you seem to preach on thankfulness an awful lot. And the pastor said, well, how do you feel about that? And he said, well, I'm grateful. <laughs> Mission accomplished, right? Now, thankfulness really should be the theme of the Christian. It's something you can't hear about too often because we're prone to forget thankfulness, especially when times are hard. Thankfulness is to the difficulties of life, what antidote is to poison. Thankfulness is to our times of despair, what a mother's kiss is to a scraped knee. And thankfulness is to our assessment of life, what color and perspective is to a masterwork of art. It colors and gives perspective. Thankfulness becomes old news, it becomes irrelevant, it becomes useless about as often as green grass fails to please the eye, as often as a sunset fails to thrill the soul and as often as a rainbow seems mundane and hum-ho, ho-hum. It's just always good to be thankful. Now, at the beginning of your walk with Christ, it's easy. Thankfulness is second nature because you're thankful for everything. There's an overwhelming gratitude for your salvation from sin that Jesus Christ would actually die in your place. And I've heard new believers in prayer just say, thank you, God, for saving me with tears of joy and gratitude and then perhaps the next lesson we learn as believers is to be thankful when suffering and anguish listen make us feel as though there is little to be thankful for and perhaps the next lesson the one which we'll look tonight look at tonight is to learn to be thankful to the lord as a matter of habit to gear your thinking toward thankfulness toward gratitude and our theme in the book of Numbers has been spiritual maturity as Israel has been given plenty of opportunities to grow in their faith in the Lord. And tonight we'd like to look at spiritual maturity through thankfulness. And we'll begin in Numbers chapter 27. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, Numbers 27. And as you're finding that text, I thought it might be useful to very briefly develop a, a quick theology of thankfulness. What it means to be thankful And so we'll just do a a quick theology of thankfulness. First of all, being thankful is a God-glorifying act. Being thankful is a God-glorifying act. Revelation 4 verse 9 speaks of angels in heaven giving to God glory and honor and thanks. Those go together. That alone is reason enough to develop thankfulness because we want to give to the Lord the glory that's due to him as he receives your thanks. And so being thankful is a God-glorifying act. We could also say that, secondly, being thankful is part of your worship. Being thankful is part of your worship. In Luke 17, Jesus healed ten lepers. He commanded them to go show themselves to the priest per the law of Moses. One came back, Luke 17, 16 tells us, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Fell on his feet, fell on his face, rather. This is a word often used in the New Testament to speak of worshiping God. As a matter of fact, thankfulness is the prescribed state of your heart in corporate worship together. It's how you're to be right now in the assembly of God's people. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness in your heart to God. So being thankful is part of your worship. We could also say that being thankful is God's will all the time. Being thankful is God's will all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You never need to pray, Lord, is it your will for me to be thankful right now? You never have to pray that. You always know that it is his will. We could also say that being thankful goes far beyond personal gratitude. Being thankful goes far beyond personal gratitude. A mature, thankful heart is thankful to God for things which might not directly benefit you, but give glory to God. 
For example, Paul told the Roman church in Romans 1.8, he said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. When was the last time you thanked God for something that wasn't directly a benefit to you? Being thankful goes far beyond personal gratitude. We could also say that being thankful cleanses the heart of bitterness. It cleanses the heart of bitterness. Paul told the Philippian church in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, it can't be possible that Paul's memories of the church of Philippi were 100% pleasant. That's not possible. And yet, in his gratitude for them, what he was doing was purging his heart of any leftover sourness. And so, if you're tempted to be bitter towards someone, sit and tell the Lord 100 things you're thankful for about that person. And purge the heart. Being thankful cleanses the heart of bitterness. We'll do one more. Being thankful is expressed tangibly. Being thankful is expressed tangibly. The idea of a thank offering is rooted in the law of Moses. And that principle continues forward into the new covenant. One of the reasons that you're commanded, and I'm commanded to give materially, to give tangibly to the Lord, is simply out of hearts of gratitude. Where you, as it were, put your money where your mouth is, or more importantly, put your money where your heart is. And so we are thankful and we express that tangibly. So that's just a a very brief and incomplete theology of being thankful. We've laid a little groundwork now. The next few chapters in the book of Numbers, beginning here in chapter 27, really give us an opportunity to see some examples of how we are to be thankful, what blessings from the Lord should be highlighted in our minds as we're continually offering our thanks to him Now, this major next section of Numbers basically deals with tying up some loose ends. These are things not dealt with in earlier laws and reminding the second generation of Israel now on the banks of Moab, on the on the plains of Moab, rather on the plain on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready for the conquest. Just reminding this younger second generation of some of the basics which God through Moses had taught the first generation. And now we get into just some details And it gives us a fabulous opportunity to see the blessings of God for which we're to be thankful. And they're not particularly one order in order of importance, but they're just some things, some blessings that we can learn to be thankful for. The first one we'll call the blessing of God's kindness. The blessing of God's kindness. Chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, contain a story with a legal problem. Here's the legal problem. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness." He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. In other words, give us land. Give us an inheritance. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, the census, just in the last chapter, 26, has already drawn attention to the fact that Zelophehad's family is in a unique situation. Verse 33 tells us this of chapter 26. The law of inheritance was that the land that would have belonged to Zelophehad would go to his sons. But since he had no sons, no provisions had been made for his daughters. They would be essentially destitute. And so the daughters of Zelophehad came to the officials of Israel, including Moses, because they would be left without an inheritance, without a way to live, unless a different ruling was made. 
Now, why was the land so important? Well, this is an agrarian society. This is a society which is really the prime type of society God has ordained since the earth started that way, and it will return to this sort of society in the millennial kingdom. Land was your income. Land was your inheritance. Land was your heritage. It was your home. It was everything. It was so important. And so God, who made woman to be loved and cherished and cared for, makes provision Verse 6, he says, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. They're right. But not only does God give the daughters of Zelophehad the inheritance of land, he also makes certain the situation is always dealt with in fairness in the future and makes inheritance law for Israel in verses 8 through 11. Now, this is an incredible act of kindness on God's part, that that God always desires for the women of his people to be cherished and cared for. By the way, in the ancient Near East, this sort of law protecting women this way would be unheard of. This would be unique in all the world to protect the daughters of a man. Now, this system of the sons receiving an inheritance, but not the daughters, this is not discriminatory. It's not unfair. This is not sexist at all. A daughter would receive all the benefits, all the wealth of an inheritance, but the way she did it was to marry into it. It wouldn't make sense to do it otherwise. She would marry into it, into another family. Now, in our culture, it often feels very much like a man marries into his wife's family. That's kind of how it feels now. That's probably somewhat indicative of the feminization of our culture. The biblical norm, though, was that the woman married into her husband's family. We do still carry that one tradition from that biblical norm that a woman takes her husband's name. But other than that, it's pretty much, you know, if you have sons and they get married, they're gone, right? But that's not the biblical norm. But this is phenomenal. That Out of several million Israelites, some estimates as high as six million, as low as three million, millions of Israelites, God listened to the plea of five insignificant daughters of Zelophehad. The Lord heard the sheep of his flock and responded to their need. The Lord is the ultimate shepherd, the model for all earthly shepherds. And in his kindness, he made certain that these women were provided for. Could I ask you this? I know we thank the Lord for our salvation. We thank the Lord for the big things. But when was the last time you spent time thanking the Lord for the little tiny kindnesses? The the small things? Not in passing. Thank you, Lord, that I made that green light. Not, not in passing like that, but really stopping to think through those so-called little things, which, by the way, if they were all missing, would suddenly seem like big things. Any Christian who says, I just don't see God working in my life, has stopped looking for the mercies and the kindnesses of God. How, how a nice phone call happened when you needed it. When, when a text came at just the right time. How a simple dinner with your family was a rich blessing. How your wife blesses you with her love. How your husband does tasks you don't want to do. How a friend had a timely word. How about being thankful for a short line at the grocery store? How about being thankful for a long line at the grocery store so that you can pray and learn to be patient? (laughs) If you sat down and thought of every single blessing of the Lord that happens every single day, you would be blown away. You would say, oh, look, my God is going before me in every single moment. In our sin nature, and especially being American Christians, we tend toward feeling very entitled and very deserving. And when the Lord allows difficulties, especially ones lately like we're not used to, it exposes those arrogant tendencies of entitlement. But if you'll notice the simple kindnesses of the Lord, that's the, that's the antidote to entitlement. That's the antidote to feeling deserving That the very same God that 3,500 years ago remembered the vulnerable daughters of Zelophehad remembers you and proves it every single day. Every day. You might wake up each morning remembering the third chapter of Lamentations that his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. You can be thankful for the blessing of God's kindness. It's the second blessing to be thankful for that we'll see in our text here. We'll call this the blessing of God's shepherds. The blessing of God's shepherds. Now, since the question of inheritance has just been addressed, it's at this point that the book of Numbers deals with inheritance, so to speak, that Moses is going to leave, not a biological inheritance, but a spiritual inheritance. God tells Moses how the end of his life will come about. Chapter 27, verse 12. 
The Lord said to Moses, go up onto this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Wow, it's almost like if I was Moses, Lord, how often are you going to bring that up? But remember, Moses is writing this. This is the inspired word of God. But look at what Moses says. He's at peace with the Lord's decision. And like a good shepherd of his people, he's concerned for them. Verse 15, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, Let the Lord, the God of, all, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And so God appoints Moses' longtime assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, and now all of a sudden we get this rich and timeless reminder of the chosen spiritual leadership of God's people. Really, we get a standard to aim for. The leaders of God's people in this age are the shepherds, the pastors, or elders. God appoints some, 1 Timothy 5, to work hard at preaching and teaching, while others do what 1 Thessalonians 5 calls the labor of the ministry. I'd like to preach one message that isn't aimed at me on occasion, but it just seems to be working out that way lately. But we see God's heart for shepherds in this section, in this section here. What would God have for his shepherds? What would God's will be? What would God's heart be for a shepherd such that a shepherd is one that you can be thankful for? The one main point we see in Moses the shepherd is that shepherds love the sheep. They love the sheep. Verse 17, Moses wants the Lord to choose a successor. He says, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep. They have no shepherd. Can you hear the heart of the great shepherd? Can you hear the Lord Jesus Christ on the banks of the Sea of Galilee in the springtime when the grass was green, according to the Gospel of Mark, with thousands of people waiting for him on the shore? Mark 6.34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things says that Jesus had compassion on them. It's a word that means to have pity in your gut, in your inward parts. It's a visceral reaction to the need of the sheep of God to be shepherded. That's what a shepherd is. is one who loves his sheep and, and loves to make sure that they're okay and that they're cared for. And notice how Jesus shepherded. He began to teach them many things. We shepherd with the knowledge of God. We shepherd with the knowledge of his will. We shepherd with the knowledge of his word. Moses, like Jesus, was moved by love and compassion for his people. That was his motivation. This is what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, that the aim of our charge is love. The shepherd of God's people is burdened by a love for them, by a God-given concern for them. Do you realize what God has just told Moses? He's told Moses, your time is done. It's time to be finished with this life. Your job is finished. And what does Moses do? He keeps on shepherding. His shepherding is in his soul. The burden for his people is clinging to him to the very last. The shepherds of God's people are to be men burdened with a yearning to be, listen, disciple makers, not decision makers. A non-disciple making shepherd is not a shepherd. They're to be feeders of the sheep not forgetters of the sheep titus 1 verse 9 says shepherds are to give instruction to teach the people of god to hold firm to the trustworthy word the shepherds are to be tender with the sheep not a tyrant to the sheep jesus was a shepherd matthew 12 verse 20 says who a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench in other words that which is weak and almost broken he won't come and finish the job he'll be tender And the shepherd is to be loving to the sheep, not lording it over the sheep. Peter tells shepherds not to domineer over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And how are they to be examples? Not by some sort of long-distance observation. 
the implication is that shepherds are deeply involved in the lives of enough people that a clear example of life-on-life communication in faith can be seen up close and personal. Shepherds are the men, be men weighed down, burdened, yearning to be disciple makers, not decision makers, feeders of the sheep, not forgetters of the sheep, tender with the sheep, not a tyrant to the sheep, and loving to the sheep, not lording it over the sheep. As a matter of fact, that same 1 Peter 5 passage that says that shepherds are the exercise oversight. They're the exercise oversight. This is the, the root word episkopos, often translated overseer. 1 Timothy 3, 1, the tr- saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, episkopos, he desires a noble task. But what is an overseer? Yes, it implies supervision of watching over, but it is, according to one of the classic gold standard lexicons of the Greek New Testament, listen to this, quote, the act of watching over with special reference to being present of visitation. It's not sitting in an ivory tower making decisions. It's visiting with people and knowing people. Not in the sense of I'm coming over to visit with you, but in the sense of knowing people by having visited with them, by having relationships with them, by being intimate in their lives. And why would that be so important? Because love thrives at the level of knowing people. That's where love thrives. Otherwise, it just becomes theoretical. Now, I went through this and I thought, well, how on earth could Moses have visited with and known several million people? How's that possible? Obviously, he couldn't. But he ministered to enough that the rest of them knew he was available. Three million people and the daughters of Zelophehad got to see Moses. Did you catch that? They went to Moses. He was available at least for a short meeting and he had managed, by the way, without social media, to make it known that he was available. And did you notice what Moses did first with the daughters of Zelophehad? He quietly listened to them. He just listened to hear their heart. And did you notice what he did second? He went to the Lord on their behalf. He prayed for them. That's a shepherd. God's heart for shepherds is that they love the sheep. And this is a must. It's a must because God has placed the shepherds in authority over a sheep. Chapter 27, verse 20 You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. Both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. May God rescue the church from shepherds who exercise authority and dominion that is loveless and motivated by anything other than a burden of concern and Delight in the people of God. And yes, sometimes that love means knocking a sheep on the noggin with the shepherd's staff. But that's still an act of love. The motivation is love. Love for that person and love for those that that person might be hurting. God is so faithful. He's always provided shepherds for the church. It's amazing to me that for 2,000 years, the church has always had her shepherds. We say it doesn't feel like enough, but it's been exactly the right amount. It's been exactly what God would have. Why has God always provided shepherds for the church? Because Jesus guaranteed this as a gift. Ephesians 4 says that he gave shepherds to the people of God who really make up the the church of Jesus Christ. Thankfulness for your shepherds. And this isn't a self-aggrandizing thought here. This is really aimed at God. Thankfulness for your shepherds is just a human way of being thankful for the word of God. It's through your shepherds that the, the word of God is poured into your heart. And I have to say at Grace Bible Church, you are generally a very, very thankful congregation. And you express this in numbers of ways. But really, when you thank me, when you thank our pastors, it's God you're thanking. Because he's the one who provides shepherds. I didn't want to be a pastor. That wasn't my idea. I, I wanted to play my trumpet for, the, for a living. God had other ideas. No, the church needs shepherds and you're going to be one. Plus, you're not that good anyway, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) When you're thankful to your shepherds, you're thankful to God. And the, the thanks gets passed through shepherds to God. And, of course, our thankfulness to get to shepherd sheep gets passed to you. 
Is the attitude of Moses really explainable from a human standpoint? It's not, really. I'll tell you why. These people have been a thorn in his side in countless ways. And yet his love and concern for them is supernatural in that after having just been informed of his impending death, his first concern is, but who will shepherd your people? Who will shepherd your people? You know, when a pastor gets tired enough of a situation, he has the option to go on to another church. I don't always think that's a great idea, but he has the option. Moses was stuck. There wasn't another chosen nation on earth. And there was three million of them that had just driven him to the point of insanity at times. And yet, his last request for them is, God, please provide a shepherd. Don't let them be sheep without a shepherd. Be thankful for the blessing of God's kindness. Be thankful for the blessing of God's shepherds. We get another reminder. Be thankful for the blessing of God's priority. Be thankful for the blessing of God's priority. Chapters 28 and 29. The second generation of Israelites get a clear reminder of what God's top number one priority for them is. That is their worship. It is their worship. This second generation is going to get a reminder of God's priority of worship previously given to them both in Exodus and in Leviticus, a fresh memory trigger for them. Chapter 28, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food and my for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. Then in verses 3 through 8, the Lord explains that Israel as a nation is to offer a lamb twice per day, every single day. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. It is to be a lamb without blemish, a burnt offering unto the Lord. Also, there's to be a grain offering and a drink offering of strong drink, meaning wine, offered to the Lord. Then in verses 9 and 10, the Lord gives instructions about Sabbath day sacrifices. There will be two lambs without blemish. This is in addition to the normal morning and evening lamb. Also a grain offering and a drink offering. Then, verse 11, At the beginning of your months you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old, without blemish. Also a grain offering and a drink offering. Tacked on to the very end, and this is going to become important, verse 15. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord, it shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Then the Lord gives the second generation the reminder of Passover, verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Lord's Passover. Immediately following that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a seven-day-long celebration, day one, Happens in verse 18, on the first day there shall be a holy convocation, a gathering, an assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. And on that day there will be a burnt offering of two rams, a lamb, a ram rather, I'm sorry, two bulls, a ram and seven lambs, all without blemish. And once again, we're going to see this over and over again, verse 22, also one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. The burnt offerings are for fellowship with the Lord and it is, as it were, sharing a meal with God. The sin offering makes that fellowship possible through atonement. So the atonement has to happen every time. The seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in which no bread with yeast has been eaten for a week which signifies the purity of God's people because in the Bible yeast is mostly symbolic for the spreading of sin. But the seventh day, once again, there's a holy convocation, a gathering, no working that day, just just worshiping. And then we get to, in verse 26, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of first fruits, later to be known as Pentecost, because it's 50 days, or seven weeks or so, after Passover. Chapter 28, verse 26, On the day of the first fruits, when you offer a grain offering of new grain to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no you shall not do any ordinary work. There it is again, a holy convocation, a gathering. You have a burnt offering. And again, verse 30, with one male goat to make atonement for you. Whatever day the feast of weeks fell on in any given year, it was to be treated as a Sabbath. It was a day off for God's people to worship and worship alone. And then in chapter 29, we come to the Feast of Trumpets. 
And can we guess what Israel is to do on the Feast of Trumpets? Verse 29, verse 1, On the first day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets. Now, why the trumpets? Well, the trumpets are blown to gather God's people and to emphasize the glory and the joy of the gathering. Can I put it this way? The trumpets are a celebration of the celebration. What else? Burnt offerings, grain offering, drink offering, and to enjoy this fellowship with God, verse 5, with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. And then we get to the spiritual high point, the highlight of the year, the high time of the Israelite worship calendar, the Day of Atonement. Verse 7, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and afflict yourselves. You shall do no work. Afflict yourselves by means of what? Of fasting. It's the only prescribed fast all year long. It's a day of penitence. It's a day of confession with the high priest representing the people to God. And what do you have? You have burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings. Verse 11, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the sin offering of atonement and the regular burnt offerings and its grain offering and their drink offerings. In other words, you had to give a sin offering in order to give the sin offering. Atonement is important. But now, just five days after the Day of Atonement, a holy day comes with a completely different tone. Verse 12, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And this feast is over the top. And you, verse 13, and you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, 13 bulls from the herd, two rams, 14 male lambs, a year old. They shall be without blemish. This feast is the time when Israelites would build booths or tabernacles, tents, and stay in them for a few days to remember God's mercy when they were living in tents. Hundreds of years later, King Solomon would dedicate the new temple of God in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It was a feast to celebrate God's spiritual mercies, his earthly mercies of a place to live, of food and drink and prosperity. And yes, guess what you needed to fellowship with God? Verse 16, also one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offerings, its grain offering and its drink offering. By the way, the massive sacrifice that I read was just day one. Day two, 12 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. Day three, 11 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. Day four, 10 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. Day five, nine bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. Day six, eight bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. Day seven, seven bulls, two rams, 14 lambs. And on each of those days, a male goat to atone for sin. This is like the 12 days of Christmas. And day eight... Verse 35, on the eighth day, you shall have a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall offer a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. And the grain offering and the drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, for the lambs in the prescribed quantities. Also, one male goat for a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Listen, the Feast of Tabernacles was to have more sacrifices than the rest of the year combined. It was the culmination of the joy of God's people and His great mercy to them. Why is the Feast of Tabernacles so important? If we would skip ahead at some other time, we did this a few months ago, skip ahead to John chapter 7, we see that Jesus Christ announces himself to Israel and offers himself to Israel at the Feast of Tabernacles because ultimately the reason for the Feast of Tabernacles is to celebrate a future day when Messiah comes to reign on earth and provide for his people. We're going to see more of that in a moment. That's why it's the big one. How do we summarize all this? Deep breath. A daily offering 365 days a year. A Sabbath offering 52 days a year. The first of the month offering 12 days a year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread 7 days a year. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost 1 day a year. Feast of Trumpets 1 day a year. Day of Atonement 1 day a year. Feast of Tabernacles 8 days of the year. For a total of 113 bulls, 37 rams, 1,093 lambs, and 30 goats. Besides the daily offerings... 
besides the daily offerings, Israel was commanded to worship, listen, 82 days a year. 82 days a year. You are here on Sunday night. It is not too much to ask that you come 50 days a year. 82 days a year. That's, that's tremendous. What was God's priority for his people? Is that they worship him in holy convocation in assembly. And what did this do for Israel? Why is this a reason to be thankful? Because it ordered their lives. And what did it order their lives around? It ordered their lives around atonement. How would we say it? We would say our lives are ordered around the cross and around remembering Christ. They ordered their lives around the atonement for sin, around the gathering of God's people to celebrate and give thanks to God in worship. And this is God's priority for you. And this is something to be ever so thankful for. The priority of the holy convocation, which is focused on atonement, thankfulness for the once for all sacrifice of Christ, which did away with the temporary animal sacrifices for celebration, for giving thanks. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm thankful for God, to God for giving that order of life, for giving that punctuation of life, a priority for life. But how easily do we give that up? How easily do we have to fight for that? How easily do we trade worship for so many other things? How easily worship becomes simply another calendar item to try to fit into supposedly equal important things in life. Can I tell you an easy way to make this a priority? Get a good old-fashioned paper calendar with nothing on it. Write worship on it every Sunday, then fit the rest of your life into it. That's the Christian life. How sad it is to see a Christian who struggled to go to church, who struggled to be consistent in worship, who struggled to, heaven forbid, give a whole day of worship instead of maybe an hour. And what about a time of crisis or even danger? Last week, I was about to preach this text from Numbers 27, 28, and 29 when I came across a glorious text that so bowled me over that I did my whole message on it last Sunday night. Instead, literally drove me to my knees. It's worth rereading, though, this story that happened 530 years later in Jerusalem. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 20, where we were last week, and we join King Jehoshaphat, and he's in trouble. He is in trouble. He doesn't know what to do. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And I'll just read the, the bulk of this story. It's a, it's a beautiful story. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazanan Tamar, that is in Gedi, meaning they're about a day away. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Look what a life ordered by worship made them do. Oh no, we're surrounded. We'd better go to church. We'd better worship. 
And again in verse 9, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, in other words, disease or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. A life ordered by worship should make you thankful because you know what to do when trouble hits. What do you do? You worship. You know what you should hope for? Trouble hits on Saturday night. Sunday's right around the corner. The blessing of God's kindness. The blessing of God's shepherds. The blessing of God's priority of worship. Can you give me just another moment? Because we can't just take these helpful object lessons of blessings for which we are to be thankful without being reminded also of the bigger picture of God's redemptive plan concerning Israel. This is what Numbers is about. Book of Numbers is about them. And so we could add one more blessing. We'll call this one the blessing of God's plan. The blessing of God's plan. A plan for which we're to be grateful because it's God's perfect plan. These events in Numbers 27, 28, and 29 give us four important theological principles about Israel, about God's plan for Israel. Here's the first theological principle. God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. Where do we see this? The daughters of Zelophehad remind us of God's land promises. How much land did Israel own at this point? None. This is prior to entering into their land. The land is part and parcel of the Abrahamic covenant, of God's promise to Abraham that he would give him a nation and the nation would occupy a land. The theology of the land of Israel, this is a massive topic, but suffice to say this, that one ought to be very, very judicious and very careful about ever taking the theological position which diminishes or denigrates the importance of land to the future of Israel. How many saved Jews believe in a future land promise of Israel? All of them. Why? Because they read their Old Testament. First theological principle, God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. Second theological principle, God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. At this point, you're wondering if I messed up. I haven't. Listen, the appointment of Joshua serves as a guarantee. It's a guarantee that the plan of God is moving forward to receive the land. It's it's going forward. And like Moses, Joshua will act as commander-in-chief of the Israelite army. But in this case, it will be to bring them all the way home to their rightful inheritance, literally onto the land that has been deeded to them by God through Abraham. There's a third important theological principle. God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. We saw this in the priority of worship. Which of these areas of worship will be reinstituted when Christ returns? Feast of Tabernacles? Zechariah 14, 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations, this is when Christ has returned, that have come against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, to keep the Feast of Booths. It will be reinstituted. How about the Sabbath? Ezekiel 44 through 46, speaking of the new kingdom when Christ has come, gives commands concerning keeping Sabbath six times. And what's the emphasis? Zechariah 14, 10 and 11, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel, to the king's wine presses. It shall be inhabited, and there shall never again be a decree of other destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security with Sabbath and the Feast of Booths reinstituted. You will get to observe and see and celebrate a Feast of Tabernacles. That's going to be glorious. One more theological principle, and you're on to me now. God's promise of land is a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant. Did you notice the offerings? Lambs, which must be raised. Grain, which must be grown. Drink offerings from grapes, which must be grown. On what? On land, on land, on land. Dr. C.E.B. Cranfield, one of the premier scholars in recent centuries on the book of Romans, He wrote concerning Romans 9, 
through 11, which makes the clear case for a future restored Israel. And Cranfield, like so many Reformed, in, in the Reformed Christian faith, he had been a supersessionist. The supersessionist is somebody who believes that the church has become the new Israel and that the land promises to Israel are just fulfilled symbolically. But Dr. Cranfield changed his mind when he studied Romans 9, 10, and 11. And he wrote this, and it's a lengthy quote, but it's worth listening to. He says, quote, I confess with shame to having also myself used in print on more than one occasion this language of the replacement of Israel by the church. It is only where the church persists in refusing to learn this message of Romans 9 through 11, where it secretly, perhaps unconsciously, believes that its own existence is based on human achievement and so fails to understand God's mercy to itself that it is unable to believe in God's mercy for still unbelieving Israel and so entertains the ugly and unscriptural notion that God has cast off his people Israel and simply replaced it by the Christian church. These three chapters emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. Why is the land a permanent part of the Abrahamic covenant? Why is that important? Why is that? Because it proves that God's promises concerning his elect will never be null and void. Ever. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. This is Paul speaking. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This is incredibly important. Listen carefully. Because if God can alter the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, then it follows that he might alter the terms of the new covenant. And if God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and if God said in Ezekiel 37, 25, they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. If God said that, then this must also be a trustworthy, unaltered promise by God in that we may trust Christ when he said, John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also And that when Jesus said in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And we may trust Christ when he records for us in the book of Revelation, the loud voices of heaven in Revelation 11, 15, saying, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And just in case, little old you, feel a little bit lost in this grand plan of God. Remember that the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, said about you and you and you and you. He said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Here's why the land promises the Abrahamic covenant is so important because it helps us trust the new covenant because Jesus said, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. The blessing of God's plan says that because God keeps all his promises to all his people, you will in fact arrive safely home in the Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. So much to thank God for. We said being thankful is a God-glorifying act. It's part of your worship. It's God's will all the time. It goes far beyond personal gratitude. Being thankful cleanses the heart of bitterness and being thankful is expressed tangibly. I'd like to end where Pastor Darren began. Would you turn with me to Psalm 100? 
Psalm 100. And let's just take in this rich psalm of thanksgiving together. Would you stand with me as I read Psalm 100? Follow along with me. A psalm for giving thanks. If you have the ESV, read along with me. Here we go. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. And bow with me, would you? Our Father, we come to you with thankful hearts. We're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for the gospel of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can't fathom that. That you have allowed us to enter your courts with thanksgiving. Enter your courts with praise. Enter into the the assembly, the, the convocation, the assembly of your people No man gives or withholds that right. That was given by Christ. And Lord, we are so grateful to you. Help us to be thankful for your little kindnesses. Help us to be thankful for your shepherds. Help us, Lord, to be thankful for the priority of worship. And help us to be thankful for your plan. Your glorious redemptive plan, which ends not only in all the nations ultimately worshiping you, those who are saved, but for each one of us, our little tiny spot in the universe, you will hold us safely in your hand. You will bring us safely home. Help that fact, help those truths, Lord, to make us thankful each and every day to wake up being reminded that your mercies are new every morning. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.